Welcome to the Trinity Galewood podcast. Here you'll find live messages recorded during our weekly services at Trinity. We are a community that desires to look, live, and love more like Jesus. We're located at 1701 North Narragansett in Chicago and meet every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Trinity Galewood podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you. Uh, Nick was here last week. He said it was really hot. I don't know what he's talking about. It's beautiful in here today. So you've probably heard the story um, in print. You've read it. You've seen it on television, in movies. Maybe you've even seen it play out in real life, in everyday life. Uh, uh, A middle-aged man hits what we call a midlife crisis. And all of a sudden, his life just doesn't seem fulfilling. It doesn't seem like what he thought it was going to be. So it starts with he, he decides, I'm going to trade in the family sedan for a sports car. Maybe that'll solve it. Maybe that'll make me feel good. But he finds out sports cars are really hard to get in and out of, especially when you're middle age, right? It doesn't do it. So he decides to, uh, to, to, to maybe get in shape and uh, go on a diet to start working out, to, to pick up a new sport like golf or tennis or something like that. He's just trying to find something that'll bring that spark back into his life. He, he might even start looking at the classifieds or LinkedIn and thinking maybe a new job, maybe, maybe a shift in career, maybe, maybe that'll make me feel fulfilled, maybe that will replace what seems to be missing in my life. And if the story's really juicy, he has an affair. He uh, cheats on his faithful wife of 28 years. So the question is, what's she gonna do when she finds out? Does she uh, chase him down the driveway with a five iron? Does she divorce him? Or does she forgive him and welcome him back? Now, that seems like a strange way to start a sermon, doesn't it? But but when we read through Ezekiel chapter 16, that's really the image that God uses, that vision of hope that God has for us this morning as we work our way through this book of Ezekiel. Now, just a quick reminder, last week we started in the very beginning of this book, and we heard that the the setting is about, it's 592 BC. It's about 600 years before Jesus is born, and five years early, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had come and laid siege to Jerusalem and, and eventually taken the city and stripped the temple of all the gold and the things that were there in the temple and taken 10,000 people, the brightest and the best out of Jerusalem and carried them off into exile in Babylon, leaving behind just the old and the infirm, the poor. And uh, and, and, and last week we saw that first vision of hope that God did send to his people there. We saw the prophet Ezekiel, one who had been carried out of of, uh, Jerusalem into exile, sitting by the side of a river outside his refugee camp on his 30th birthday, and he's given this vision this vision of God and his throne. And what God was saying to them was, I have not abandoned you. 
It, it might seem like I have, but I have not abandoned you. I am with you in your exile, and I am going to rescue you. And so last week, we talked about the hope that we have, that no matter what it is we're going through, no matter what we are struggling with in our life, God promises two things to us. He promises he will be with us. He never abandons us. And he promises that he will, he will eventually bring us out of whatever that trouble is, whatever that struggle is, whatever that exile is in your life. That's his promise. Now, this week, we turn to a second vision in the book of Ezekiel, and it, 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 we find it there in Ezekiel chapter 16, and first of all, I'm so sorry that you had to read that this morning, right? Believe me, the verses I left out would have made it a lot worse. It's, it's a pretty spicy chapter, and, and by the way, it's even worse in the original Hebrew. The English translations clean it up even some, and, and, uh, and like I said, we did read just some selected verses this morning. If you want it in all its gory details, you might want to go home and read Ezekiel 16 yourself. You'll probably be a little shocked by what you see there. But, but the image here is God is saying to his people, it's like you were my bride. And not just my bride, my, my bride who was coming from horrible situations. And he said, to prepare you to be my bride, I, I bathed you with water. And I washed the blood from your previous injuries away from you. And I, I put ointments on you. And I, I clothed you with a, a beautiful embroidered dress. And God says, I did all this to prepare you to be my queen, to be, to be my bride. And, and, and he says, it worked. It worked. Your, your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. Now, but, by the way, this... This really came true in the life of God's people. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness to the promised land. He established them there in the promised land. And, and we're told that under King Solomon, when the beautiful temple was built and Solomon's beautiful palace was built, by the way, Solomon took twice as long to build his beautiful palace as he did the temple for God. That's kind of interesting. But, but, but during that time, Israel became kind of a light to the nations. And in fact, we're told in the Bible that, that leaders of other nations came to Jerusalem to see the splendor of Solomon's palace and the temple. Israel did become famous for what God had done for it. But it goes on. God says, but you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to become a prostitute. That's the most polite English translation we could find, by the way. He says, you lavished your favors on anyone who passed by. He goes on and says this, he says, you took some of your garments to make gaudy high places. Let me stop there for just a minute. You see, what was really going on in Israel that made God so upset, what, what was really going on that, that made him so angry with his people was they had taken these high places, they were called, and they had turned them into places of worship for foreign gods. Now, let me tell you just a little bit more about that. So, so Jerusalem is the place where God's temple was built and, and where people were to come to worship their God. 
But for some, that was just too far away, or for some, that just seemed boring compared to what they saw happening in the other nations around them. So in the north of Israel, in, in the mountainous region there, they built high places. They built altars to other gods. And they did that in the south of Israel as well. And, uh, and, and they did all kinds of horrible things in those places. And, Wild living in orgies and even worse, child sacrifice was happening. Think about that. Among God's people. No wonder God was so angry. He says, you, you took the jewelry that I gave you and you made for yourself idols. And, and, and they did. They, they built idols to Baal and, and Ashti and other foreign gods. It says, you took your embroidered clothes to put on them and you offered my oil and incense before them. The food I provided for you, the flour, the olive oil, and the honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. They, they took the, the bounty of their crops that God had provided for them and sacrificed that stuff to other gods. Now, this wasn't anything new. I mean, from the very beginning, God's people, right when he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, first of all, they, they, they've been rescued out of slavery in Egypt. God is bringing them to the promised land. And anytime things got tough, they were like, well, we want to go back to the gods in Egypt. Or as they gathered around Mount Sinai and Moses is up there talking to God, they become bored. And so they make a golden calf and start worshiping it there. They finally settle in the promised land, and, and, and all the other nations around them have earthly kings. They have kings, and, and God has said to them, you don't need a king, I'm your king. And they're like, no, no, we want a king. And God's like, your kings aren't going to treat you well. Your, your kings are not going to be benevolent. They're, they're going to they're do what's best for them, like take twice as long to build their own palace as my temple, and, uh, and make you pay for it, by the way. And, and the people said, no, we want a king. So God gave him a king. And, and then in, in the book of Kings and in, 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 in Chronicles, we hear story after story like the one that he's referring to here at Ezekiel where they, they worshiped other gods. They chased after everything but the God that loved them. Now, um, for many, many years, I hated country music. In fact, if you would ask me, what kind of music do you like? I would say ABC. ABC, yeah, anything but country, all right? That was, that was kind of my thing. But, but I have to admit, in about the last five to 10 years, I, I kind of like country. And, and so part of it's because I've probably changed some. Part of it is definitely country has changed some, all right? But, uh, but, but I have started exploring back some of the old country that I missed, right? And one of the songs comes from a, a guy named Johnny Lee from a movie that was probably put out before a number of you were even born. It was in 1980, this movie called Urban Cowboy. And, and by the way, the story of Urban Cowboy is kind of like the story I told at the beginning today, right? It's, it's that kind of story. And, and, and one of the songs that became popular because of that movie is the song Looking for Love in all the wrong places. The lyrics are really pretty simple and you probably get it just from the title. The idea is that the, the character in the movie, and by the way, all of us too, we have a tendency in our lives to look for love, to want love, that's not bad, but we look for it in all the wrong places. 
It's what the children of Israel were doing, and it's what we do too. I, I want to just give you a few examples of that. A, a lot of people look for love in money. They think, if I could, if I could just make enough money, then, then that'll do it. You know, they did a survey once, and I find this fascinating. They said to people, how much more money would you need to be happy? And, and they went to people that made less than $50,000 a year, and they asked that question. How much more money would you need to be happy? And you know what they said? It's about 5000 a year. If, if, if I just had like an extra 10%, I'd be happy. And by the way, they went to people that made $200,000 a year. They said, how much money would you need to be happy? And they said, you know what? About 20 grand a year. About 10%. And they actually went to people that made millions of dollars a year, and they said, how much more money would you need to be happy? And guess what it was? About 10%. See, the fact is, money doesn't make us happy. But we've been taught that, that just a little bit more would make all the difference in our lives. Or maybe it's not money for you. Maybe you're going, no, no, I get it, not money. But maybe for you, it's, it's fame. I want people to know who I am. I, I, I want people in my neighborhood to know that I'm the cool person at the end of the block, all right? I, I want people where I work to, to know I was the employee of the year last year, or I want people in the Chicago area to have heard of me and know that I'm making a difference in our community, or I want to be known as the best pastor in the whole world. And we think if if if, if if people look up to us, if people know who we are, then that, that'll make us feel fulfilled. Or maybe you don't really care about fame, but what you want is power. You want control in your life. You want to be the boss. You want to be the one that makes the decisions. You don't want anybody making decisions for you. I remember when I was a little kid, I could not wait till I grew up so I could be in charge in my life. And then when I found out is I'm not really in charge in my life, right? None of us are. But there's this illusion that just the more power we have, the more control we have over our lives or the lives of others around us, then, then we'll be happy. Or maybe you're looking for love in love, in sex. The reality is there are a lot of people that think they have worth and meaning if other people look at them a certain way. Or they think that being sexually active is going to be that thing that, that helps them find love. And they confuse intimacy with love. They're not the same thing, are they? Or, or maybe for you, it's, it seems much more noble than that. Maybe for you, it's significance. I, I read a book a, a while back as I was starting to think about retirement and stuff. And it was like from success to significance. And what they were saying is a lot of people strive for success, for fame, for power, for money. And what they find is those things don't answer. But the answer is significance to make a difference in the world, to leave the world a little better place. And, and that's a good thing. That's a noble thing. But, but that can't be where we find our self-worth either. You see, in fact, folks, all of these things money and, and fame and sex and, and significance and power, those are all gifts from God. Those are all good things in our life. But when they become the center of our life or when they become the thing that we think gives our life meaning and purpose, when it's where we go looking for love, we're always going to be disappointed. Now, I, I don't know what that thing is for you. 
Maybe you're going, Mark, it's none of those five, but I'll bet you if we talked long enough, we could figure out what it is. Because we all have a thing, don't we? We all have something in our life that, that when we're down or when we're hurt or when we feel insignificant, we look to that instead of to God. So I asked the question at the beginning, you know, what's, what's the woman whose husband's just had an affair, what's she gonna do? She gonna divorce him? She gonna forgive him? So God in this vision has set him up as the, as the, the prince who has found his princess and now she has turned away to others. What's he gonna do? Is he gonna forgive her? Or is he gonna divorce her? Well, he goes on in the chapter, he says this, I will deliver you into the hands of your lovers and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and will take the fine jewelry and leave you stark naked. Now I wanna focus on just the very beginning of that. God says, the first thing I'm gonna do is, he says, I'm gonna deliver you to the hands of your lovers. In other words, what God is saying is, I'm gonna let you suffer the consequences of what you've done. Now, I, I, I don't know how many of you are parents, but if you're a parent, you probably will be able to relate to this. And if you're a kid, maybe you'll be able to understand it. And, and that's this. I think one of the hardest things I've ever had to do as a parent is let my son suffer the consequences of his actions. I re remember one particular time, and I'm not gonna go into details, that wouldn't be fair to my son, Christian, but, but he had done something wrong. He was about eight or nine years old, if I remember right. And it, 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 it was just dawning on him what the consequences of that were gonna be in his life, what was gonna happen as a result of what he had done. And he panicked, he freaked. He realized that he did not want those consequences. He wanted to avoid them at all costs. And he looked at me and he, he believed as his dad, I could fix that for him. And I could have. And, and he looked at me and I mean, he was practically hysteric. And, and he looked at me and he, he's like, dad, dad, you gotta fix this. And every fiber of my being wanted to fix it for him, right? I just wanted to say, all right, you're right, dude. I'll, I'll fix that for you. I'll, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. You don't have to suffer those consequences. But what if I'd done that? What if I always did that? And he never had to deal with the consequences of his actions in his life. And so I did one of the hardest things I've ever done as a parent. I looked at him and said, sorry, dude, can't help. Folks, God loves us so much that sometimes he lets us suffer the consequences of our actions. He lets us experience the brokenness that comes if we look for love in the wrong places. And, and that's what he said he was gonna do for the children of Israel. He said, I, I, I'm gonna deliver you into the hands of your lovers and they're gonna tear down your mounds and destroy your shrines. In other words, he says, you're not gonna find fulfillment. You're not gonna find what you're looking for when you worship these other gods. But then look at what he says at the end here. He says, then my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn away from you and I will be calm and no longer angry. And he goes on to say this, he says, I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I'm the Lord. Then 
and look at these words. He says, when I make atonement for you, for all you've done, you will remember and be ashamed. God says, I'm gonna let you suffer the consequences of, of your actions, but only for a while. And then I am going to come to your aid. I'm still going to marry you. I'm still going to make my covenant with you. I'm not going to divorce you. I'm not going to turn my back on you. You are still mine. And even more than that, God says, I'm going to make amends. I'm going to make atonement for what you've done. Not, by the way, I'll still marry you, but you're going to have to make up for what you did first. He says, no, I'll make up for what you did. And of course, that's what God did in Jesus for all of us, right? When when we broke our relationship with our God because of our sin, he didn't say, okay, that's it. You're done. I'm through with you. He sent Jesus to pay the price for our sins so that we could be restored in our relationship with God. Folks, this week as I was working on this message, I was thinking about this. I don't think I will ever truly understand how much God loves me. I mean, I I get it here intellectually. Sometimes I even feel it here emotionally. But whatever I can think, whatever I can imagine about God's love for me, whatever I can feel in those moments where I feel God's love for me, it will always fall short of what God's love for me is really like. And so here's what I wanna do for you this morning as we wrap up the message. I want you to just sit there. And for a minute, I want you to forget about all the other gods you've chased after instead of God. For, for a minute, I want you to just forget about the consequences of that in your life and the, and the problems that's caused for you in your life. For a minute, I want you to forget all about that. And I just want you to focus on how much God loves you. I'm going to read a few maybe familiar, maybe not so familiar Bible verses for you. And I, and I just want you to soak them in. And, and even though we will never be able to understand the depth of God's love, I, I want you to just experience God's love as much as you can this morning. So this, this first reading I want to share with you is often read at weddings it's often talked about as, at weddings as an example of the love that this couple is committing to each other, but, but I want you to think about it in its original context this morning. It's a description of God's love for you. God's love for you is patient and kind. His love for you is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. God's love for you does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices wherever the truth wins out. His love for you never gives up. It never loses faith in you. And it is always hopeful. His love for you endures through every circumstance in your life. And we heard this one earlier, but I want you to hear it again. This is from Romans chapter eight, and it says this, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate you from God's love for you. 
No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that he revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is from Ephesians chapter three where Paul writes this. Paul says, I, I wish that you would have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is for you. Hear that one more time. His love for you is amazingly wide and long and high and deep. May you experience the love of Christ though it is too great to understand fully. And finally this, this is from Psalm 36. Your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice like the ocean depths. How precious is your unfailing love, O God. Folks, God loves you dearly, more than you will ever know. And you don't have to look for love anywhere else but him. Would you bow your heads and and would you pray with me? Lord God, we, we admit before you today that that Lord, we do look for love in some strange places sometimes. We, we, we seek love in the things of this world that you have given us as, as signs of your love. We, we use those things that you have given us, the things of this world, to, to try to change the circumstances of our lives in such a way that we can find hope and meaning there. When things are tough, we often turn to idols of our own making. We look for love in all the wrong places. And God, you would be perfectly justified if you said, okay, that's fine. If you wanna love that stuff, go ahead. I'm done with you, I'm through with you. But you don't. Your love for us is patient and kind. Your love for us is vast and deep. Your love for us is unbreakable and beyond our understanding. Your love for us never fails. Lord, thank you for loving us this much. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would just continue to give us the gift of your love every day and help us to turn to you first and foremost in our lives. In your name we pray, amen. Well, at this time, I invite you to grab the bread and the wine that you got as you came in together today. Now, here at Trinity, we believe something. We believe that when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant it. And we believe when he said, this is my blood, he meant that too. And in in some way that is beyond our understanding, here in bread and wine, we receive the true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Now, let me ask you this for a second. Why would he do that? It's a little weird, isn't it? 
And in fact, by the way, the, some, some of the early leaders in the world, when they heard about this new Christian cult, these followers of Jesus, they said they eat, their, they eat his flesh and blood and they, they called them cannibals. That was weird. Why would Jesus do that? Well, here's, here's what I believe. I could tell my wife over and over and again, I love you, and I'm sure she's glad to hear it. But she likes a hug every once in a while, too. And, and we could hear, you know, somebody stand up in front and read Bible passages and tell you over and over again how much God loves you. Or you can experience it, too. And that's why in the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said to them, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At this time, I invite you to receive the gift of God's love for you through the body of Jesus shed for you.